Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by my usual Bond aficionados for another episode of the Bond Daft Project. Fluffing my lines here, of course, because it's been so long. You absolute amateur. <laughs> joined remotely by Francis Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. Steve McCall. A very good afternoon to you all. And Gordon Webster, who we can't see. Good afternoon, Commander Barry. Oh, Command- such a shame you can't see my Universal Exports T-shirt here. All oh, right, okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should have sent us the photo on the WhatsApp. But anyways, uh, yeah, we're here for, for for anyone who's who who can't see this, which is everyone. Gordon, basically, all of us are here. We can see each other, but Gordon is just a circle. Yep. So yeah. I'm like the remember the Mistrons out of Captain Scarlet? They're just these circles. <laughs> you never you never see them, but they're, they're fucking dangerous. Yep. That's you, Gordon. A lethal circle. Gordon, <laughs> we get back to the spherical heads. Yeah. Uh right. Okay. So yes, we're here of course for film twenty three, the penultimate film so far in the Bond franchise. Skyfall. One of the most commercially successful for the entire series. Um, it also passed the billion dollar mark. Uh, this is one of the high points of the series. One I have seen only once in the cinema and really enjoyed. So I'm really looking forward to coming back to this. Um, but very quickly, let's do a little quick catch up on what's been going on. How are we all? Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Um, I've had a very busy couple of weeks, which is a shame because it's kind of eaten into any potential film or television walking, television watching, I should say. (laughs) So uh, I've been in the car, gone out on some walks. I've mostly been at work. And in terms of TV, I've kind of, once again, relapsed into crap television. Basically, I bought Amazon Prime uh, a couple of weeks ago to get some Amazon deliveries, and I was going through that. And I discovered one of my favorite ever TV series, which is a crap American TV, reality TV series called Bar Rescue. I don't know if any of you seen this. No. Directed by uh. a guy called John Taffer, who is a kind of legend of the bar business in America. He's kind of taken over and redone over 800 bars in his life. And it's kind of, you know, the premise of uh, Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. Mm-hmm. He goes into restaurants that are failing, shouts at everyone and kind of proves it and makes it better. It's that, but on steroids. This guy goes into bars, shouts at the owners for a bit, works out what's wrong, and then generally knocks the whole thing down, builds a whole brand new bar, and then leaves them all smiling and stuff like that. It's <laughs> trash, but I absolutely love it. So I've been, I've basically for the last couple of weeks binging on that, and I'm literally racking my brains to think I've seen anything else, but I actually haven't. It's been a terrible week for actually watching anything of any kind of intellectual to be honest i haven't really watched anything i don't think over the last two weeks i've we didn't do a catch-up episode and things like that or two for the last two weeks um so i've just not been in the mood really um so that's fine you don't have to there's no obligation (laughs) good to hear you're you're good because everyone else is going to say oh they've watched this incredible cultural significant moment and i'll be like uh i've watched a guy <laughs> I'm sure there's some cultural significance really deep down if you look into it there. Uh, all right then, Fran, what's been going on? Well, I started work in the education sector, so I've been doing that. Obviously, you know, there's limited things I can say about that due to professional 
reasons. You know, you can't really talk about it, but um, it's been good to move to a new area down in Hoyk, uh, down in the Scottish borders. Basically, like uh, new new home, new friends, social life, new job, like everything is new. Um, in terms of what I've been watching, I actually there's a, a a new Star Trek series that came out, an animated series called Star Trek Lower Decks. And it's set during the next generation era, so kind of your 80s Star Trek. So it looks exactly the same. It's kind of almost like Rick and Morty style animation, and it's a comedy show. So, but it, but it's comedy. It's not slapstick. It's basically the the whole idea of the program is that the ship, it's called the USS Cerritos, is like one of Starfleet's kind of crap ships. It's like a ship that doesn't get to do any of the real missions. So, like, where the Enterprise would go and do, like, first contact with alien species and things like that and go and, you know, the big battles. The Cerritos is the kind of ship that would go after the Enterprise and do, like, the admin and fill out the forms for the race that like, just got contacted to join the Federation. So, like, there's not... Like, like, the crew are all just like secondary officers and it's they're always getting things wrong basically and making mistakes and the, the series follows a group of ensigns who like work on the very bottom of the ship and they all have like ambitions to become whatever but they're just terrible like naive or just stupid or like rebellious like you know they're always getting things wrong like crashing shuttles and you know re- you know releasing viruses onto the ship and things like that do you know what i mean so there's there's a lot to it um, so I've really been enjoying it. It's really funny. Like, I, you know, genuinely kind of burst out laughing a few times at things that were on it. Just, like, situational comedy. Do you know what I mean? It's not... I, I kind of liken it to Shaun of the Dead because Shaun of the Dead, it wasn't slapsticky. It was more... It was because the, the people were just so normal that, that made it funny. Do you know what I mean? It was just, it was like following us. Yeah, it was like just, the... the, the comedy out of banality like that uh-huh. sort of like the first third is just him doing really normal things that happen to have he doesn't even notice that there's a zombie apocalypse has happened you know yeah. it's closing in on him making his breakfast and making really like dramatic cuts when he's getting the milk out and things like that like going to yeah. the shops and there's like zombies and stuff he doesn't even know i love it yeah well, that's that's it i mean lord x is like that like basically one of the episodes um, they're supposed to go down and speak to an alien species and give them like a crystal thing as like as a sign of uh, like peace or whatever. But they bring the wrong thing down and they open the box and it's a bit of wood and the alien race just goes insane and imprisons them. Do you know what I mean? So this whole thing comes out of like an ensign making picking up the wrong box, pretty much. Like he just picked up the wrong box on the ship because he wasn't paying attention, and then it causes this whole incredibly bad incident but i love it i would highly recommend you guys watch it because it i think it's the best it's kind of like the mandalorian actually because when star wars was reinvigorated like the movies weren't so good like the big huge things weren't so great apart from rogue one but like you had things like mandalorian that were the side things that ended up being the best and i feel like the same with star trek like picard is good you know some of the new stuff at discovery not so good but this little animated series is the best thing that they've come out with so far I love it. Cool. Gordon? Five, five stars. Excellent. Gordon, what's yeah. been going on? <laughs> I've just been working mostly. Mate, um, I was visiting my mum and dad's again. This was quite funny. I was telling them about the podcast and we're discussing Bond a little bit. And my mum said to me suddenly, oh, yeah, I, I, I was once I was in a, a restaurant from one of the films. I was like, really? You never told me that. She was like, oh, that revolving restaurant at the top of the mountain. I just remembered I, w- I was there 
Um, it was sometime in the 1970s before she was married to my dad. I was like, really? This is, this is obviously P's Gloria from On Imagine's Secret Service. Because my mum was quite a keen skier in her youth, and her and her friend went to various places in Switzerland. I was like, God, you, I've been... I've been into Bond for about like, almost 30 years and you've, and you've never even told me. She's like, yeah, I've been there. And she's like, I skied down the mountain and all. I was like, you skied down the mountain? Seriously? And so she's, she she was sitting in the, of course, the the revolving, like the picture, Steve, um, <laughs> the revolving restaurant, you know, Bowfield's Mountain Retreat. And then, of course, she she basically did. We're guys, I mean, we're always, I've sometimes said, has anyone done anything bonding? My mum's fucking skied down the mountain George Lazenby style. It was like it was like Bond and Tracy, or then later in the film Bond and Bofeld before they have their bobsleigh chase. So they like they they actually not only visited an absolutely amazing Bond location. My mum has actually performed one of the the stunts out of the film, which I mean, and I, I was just amazed that that it took so long for my mum. I, I don't know if she forgot or something. I was then going up to the loft, getting like three huge bags of photos out old 35 millimeter prints like trying to find some evidence of this because i was just so pumped by it and i found i could only find one photo it looked like some random swiss village it was hard to tell i, I showed it to my mum and said do, do you think this is the village from because she was she was pretty sure that she'd actually been to the the village where where bond gets off the train and she's like i'm not sure i couldn't quite tell but that was sort of the only clue but um yeah, well, this was before she met my dad. She actually said, like, her and her, and her friend Mary actually had dinner with a couple of guys in the, the revolving restaurant. I don't know if either of them were wearing kilts or anything like that. I don't know if they were, like, anyone attempted any sort of, like, mind control things as part of a, a plot to dis- <laughs> destroy crops or anything like that. But I was, <laughs> I just thought I'd bring that up because I just, I had no no idea. It's such it's one of these locations. If if I was ever to visit a Bond location myself, that's pretty high up the list. I would say it's a pretty amazing location, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, the other thing, I mean, this was because uh, I've not really been doing too much apart from from working. Did Did you hear the story about? Um, thankfully, nobody got injured. By the way, there was a there was a, a bus in the Strathclyde area. Where it went, which went under a low bridge and oh. pretty much did a, a rodge and just the tall top layer of the bus the, of the double decker bus was sheared off by this low bridge under a railway line. It was in, I think it was Wish On Your Mother Will. Thankfully, no, because of COVID 19, there was hardly any passengers and they were all in the bottom half, thankfully, but it was like out of love and let die, apparently. Just it was the first thing I thought of when I saw the picture from the news, which was quite I, sad. I was, I'm glad to hear nobody was hurt. That was, that would have been awful. Yeah. But I, I, I honestly don't understand how that happened. Like I know. Well, I, do you know the thing is? Crazy. I mean, I know from I know from uh, just my my railway studies writing my books. There's every so often you hear about bridge strikes because you got a lot of low railway bridges, and usually it's a a lorry, a quite a high lorry. And I think sometimes they'll just um, the roads. Maybe the driver's not familiar with. They might get diverted. And usually, I think it's just a they'll just shave it. But this, literally, the almost the whole if, top deck of the bus was just sheared right off. If you watch the the bonus features for Living Let Die, it took them multiple attempts to get that that cleanly to do it. It took them having to like pre cut it and things like that so that it was ready to come off and all these attempts to sort of do it in one take i mean it just seems crazy that first of all that there was a bridge that the the bus couldn't 
Like there was no. I, I don't. I don't. I generally don't understand how that happened. Um, but also physically, it's yeah, of course, because you need to be going at it at some fair speed for yeah. it to actually get taken right off. Because, like I said, when these things happen, usually it'll be just a slight scrape, and they'll probably be hitting it at quite a low speed. So, yeah, obviously, um, glad nobody got hurt. But it just it, it doesn't happen every day. It's one of these things that is just. I mean, I tend to just think Bond a lot, so. I guess that's what I thought there, but yeah. Definitely good that nobody was hurt, of course. That's the main thing. Uh, excellent. Well, I suppose that somehow segues us back into Bond and the film that we're about to, to watch, Skyfall, uh, released in 2012, directed by Sam Mendes. The first time he directs the two films that he's done, he does the next one as well. Uh, of course, third time, we've got Daniel Craig back and we've also got Judy Dench in her final performance as M. This will be an interesting one to watch, her, her final one. Um, and yeah, we've got some new faces as well. Um, we'll talk about them in more detail once we come back from the, uh, for the main spoiler uh, portion of the podcast. Um, yeah, this was, uh, this was Javier Bardem as your villain and we've also got a film that tries to, for my re- memory, um, kind of bring back the the event and the sort of the humor of Bond, but try and keep what they've been doing with humanizing Bond. I think this is a film that tries to kind of be the, I suppose, the goldfinger of its of its of the modern day. Um, I don't know if you agree, Gordon. And is there anything else you want to talk about as well? Set us up for this one. Yeah, and another parallel with Goldfinger we'll notice here, Steve, is it's pretty much a standalone adventure. We've the first two films from Danny Boy, we've basically had this story thread continuing uh, Casino into Quantum. They seem to somehow abandon this story thread, certainly for the time being, but I think by the time you get to Spectre, there's there's a way it's, it's they've cleverly linked it in. But also, that I don't know if they were just thinking classic Bond here, because... 2012, of course, was the 50th anniversary since the start of the series, since Doctor No. And again, I'll bring in Everything or Nothing, which was the special documentary that was released at the same time. And a lot of that focused on Skyfall, because I think Skyfall was was about to come out. But yeah, um, Javi Bardem, obviously quite a, a well-known actor, came in for this plays Raul Silva. And Naomi Harris's first appearance as the, the new Miss Moneypenny and also Ralph Fiennes, is Gareth Mallory, so he's a fit, essentially like a government minister in charge in charge of M making keeping MI six in the straight and narrow. But I think the the main premise is Skyfall. I think it, it focuses very much on on a cyber a- attack on, on cyber terrorism, and there's there's a there's a cyber attack in MI six. James Bond has been a naughty boy yet again. Daniel Craig is always he's always getting himself into a bit of trouble, and in this occasion there's a there's a mission. He's kind of assumed killed in action. He disappears for a while, lies low, and only to to come back to find there's like a cyber threat towards MI6. And there's a real link to not only to Bond's past, maybe within the 50th anniversary, Bond returning to his roots back in Scotland. Also, a skeleton in M's closet is also a big part of this film. There's a figure from M's past that emerges and it all kind of ties in with the whole cyber terrorism threat. Yep. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Um, this is a. We'll go into more detail when it when we come back. But this film 
is known for it's also the first the main Academy Award. It's only Academy Award, I think, for the song from Adele, Sky, Skyfall, obviously. Um, as well that it's just a it's so this one was one of the most commercial. Looking at all the the plaudits it's got from doing my basic research, um, you can see this film is one of the biggest hits. It broke mm-hmm. the inflation, commercial inflation of Thunderball, which had always been the most successful. I'm guessing Spe- the Spectre beat this one as well. Is it the second most successful, or is it, is this still the most successful? I'm guessing Spectre. Good question. Good question. I'm I'm not too sure, Steve. Because it, it I would say to, I think it's the most successful film of 2012. I think, and it was the most. It's the seventh like highest ranking of, and I can't remember if it was all time or whatever. It's it's up there. It, those records broke for for this one, but I actually can't remember. I, feel like i've read somewhere that specter might have beat it somehow um yeah, I, yeah. I, I, you might be right it's also it's the first one directed by sam mendes who of course came back for specter and like i said a standalone adventure without any real links to the previous ones i don't know if we've really had that since maybe die another day because you don't usually get sequels if you like in in james bond yeah and what i'm looking forward to actually and doing my basic research again was i noticed um roger deakins is the cinematographer now he's a academy award winning cinematographer he had went years uh without winning but he clearly should have for i thought sicario was one of his best um pieces of work but I think he got it for Blade Runner, the 2049 that was released a few years ago. It was fantastically shot. He did worked with Sam Mendes on, um, what was it, what, the big one? 1917. 1917. He worked with Sam. Um, so obviously, I think they had a relationship already. Um, so yeah, we've got a new composer. We'll come. We'll talk about all that when we come back. Uh, David well, Arnold. The, the, the thing is, I mean, sorry, I, I actually got kind of, I had to mute myself because I got a phone call from Sky there. So I wasn't really able to say anything, but I just wanted to kind of throw in like for the preamble, you know, this probably, I think like, I mean, I know, um, Honor Majesties is, but I've always kind of said that's like the, the way Bond should have ended or whatever. But I think really in terms of like going, I remember going to see this film in the cinema with, with my, my ex-girlfriend in the States. And it was, I think this might be my favorite Bond movie. And I think it might be the best Bond movie ever. Basically, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, you know, it was the groundskeeper guy called the guy who's at the Skyfall Mansion, the Scottish guy. What's he called again? Kincaid. Kincaid. Kincaid is one of my favourite Bond side characters of all time. And I, I like, think. Uh, Welcome to Scotland. <laughs> yeah, like, I think they had thought about getting Sean Connery in to do that part. But they decided not to because it was clearly it was stunt casting. I think they made the right choice, but you can uh-huh. see where it's meant to be clearly Sean Connery because I think they they try and cast an actor who looked a little like older Sean Connery. Uh, That's mental when you consider Connery won't even contribute to to Bond documentaries, and <laughs> what about but, he, but he did. Well, maybe <laughs> who knows if that was the they, they state they're using with stunt casting. I think they probably were right, but maybe it was they did think ask him and they, who knows what the real story is. Well, I, I, whatever whatever the case, like I just love that character, love this film. I mean, I think honestly, I mean, this is like. Like there are certain movies you get in a franchise that are almost like Christmas Day 
do you know, like Christmas dinner, like a big treat. Do you know, I mean, there's something about this film, honestly. Like, see all the times I've kind of ribbed on you, Gordon, about being a big Bond fan and like liking all the Bond references and stuff. Like, this is where I throw all that out the window. Like, I love it. Like, I just love every single bit of it. All the musical cues, all the like the gadgets, seeing the old cars again. You know, what I mean, all all of it. I love every single bit of it. Like, they did it perfectly in this film. Well, we'll find out. It's been. I've only watched it once, so I'm hoping it holds up to that viewing. Um, because yeah, I do remember loving this film, and it was up there with. I, I think at the time I preferred it over Casino Royale, but my my appreciation for Casino Royale has since went up tenfold since rewatching it for this project. So. Now it's it's going to be interesting to see if the the last big hitter of the franchise makes you know makes the same kind of impression that I first had when I watched it. I think we're done for the preamble, guys. Let's now go and watch Skyfall and come back and go into spoilerific detail. Bye bye. Gotta love the old spoilerific detail. And we are back from having watched Skyfall. How did we feel this one went? Steve, let's start with you. I really enjoyed this. Really did. Um, Again, I wasn't sure what to expect uh, based on what you guys had said beforehand. But yeah, I think what was particularly interesting about this one was the whole old versus new thing. That seemed to be a theme running right the way through it. Mm -hmm. In a sort of a couple of different levels. You've got obviously this was this whole thing was about old spying methods versus new cyber attacks and stuff like that. But there also felt like an element of old Bond films versus new ones. And this is the makers kind of going, nah, we're completely blowing up, ditching the past at one point, literally, and saying that this is how we do things now. Um, it looked fantastic. I love how this film looked. The whole, the way that sort of cinematographically they way to play with darkness and lights yeah and sort of shadows and silhouettes and stuff like that particularly some of the fight scenes um it was uh it was definitely a film it's it was long perhaps dragged slightly there were long sections where it's not that there was nothing going on it was just all very slow but it was all obviously set up for stuff that then did happen um, this it was all the key was in the the dialogue and the interaction between the characters more than it was gun explosions and killing, which felt like a nice change. You you got a lot of bond in this film. This felt think of any film we've seen so far. This felt most like we were getting to know Bond, getting to know his backstory, seeing him as a human being, watching him effectively dead and then recovering watching him go through your know, drinking problems substance abuse, inability to get back to physical peak and that sort of human side it's in a sense what slowed the film down because there was less action while you were watching all that stuff but at the same time on a character level it was massively interesting Yeah. so it was a type film this one yeah. but really enjoyable fantastic yep fran your thoughts um yeah i I really enjoyed it um i I remember enjoying it when i went to see it in the cinema um and um yeah i just i really liked the film i I felt like it was 
kind of reiterate, I suppose, remember what Steve was saying there, this idea of new and old Bond. Uh, you know, the but there was a real love for Bond that was coming across in this film. You know, it was mixed in with the actual story of the movie itself, which is quite interesting. You, you know, it wasn't just lots of references without any context. There was reasons for a lot of it. Um, I mean, particularly, I, I enjoyed even little bits like the kind of, you know, the, the contrast that was used, which was fantastic, right at the very, very end where Bond gets to M in the church and he's obviously just climbed out of that icy water and M says something like, where have you been? And he says, I was in deep water. And look, But he has this look on his face where he's really pleased with himself about the about the one-liner, but then M falls down. And, but the, so you've got this wonderful moment where Bond makes a, a joke to someone else and acknowledges his own joke and is proud of himself, but then that person it suddenly becomes a tragic scene. Is that contrast so so well done, and that's happening throughout the movie. Um, yeah, I, I thought... Well, I enjoyed the scenes in Britain more than any other scenes in the film because it's not often that Britain gets that kind of cinematography treatment where you get to really see London and Scotland and places in Britain shot so beautifully and so and it's such a big budget um big name movie like that you know it doesn't often you know it's not a big cgi fest of the city being destroyed or whatever it's just beautiful views like that scene at the end where bond's on the roof and looking out over london mm-hmm. and the flags and the kind of establishment buildings that are there right in the center um glencoe the highlands all that just looked unbelievable yeah I mean, see that, that bit where, the, where Bond and Emma are in the car driving along that really flat bit that's leading towards the mountains? Yeah. I mean, that looks like something out of Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's... I, I remember the times I've driven that... Well, I've been... Not driving myself, but being in a car, been driving along that road with someone is just astonishing as well. And it's very rare that a movie can capture that. Mm-hmm. But I'd say, apart from... Maybe, as Steve, you'll probably mention this, but there's maybe one scene that could have been slightly cut or it was a wee bit maybe unnecessary. We've had a five, ten minute conversation prior to the but, podcast, quite. We're on different ends of the spectrum but, on this, but uh, yeah, well, we'll come to it. We'll come to it. Well, we agree that it's unnecessary. I think our reasons maybe are slightly different, but um, apart from that, apart from, like, I, I really, I don't, I felt like. It, it was paced fine. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't feel... I guess it's the personal preference, isn't it? Really. But I, I just... I've always felt that this was a very tight movie. Okay. Gordon, what were you? The end of that film excited me a lot. I've got to say... I mean, I'm sitting here with Steve with my Universal X-Force t-shirt on and to see Bond return into... It was practically like the original... Um, M's office, the 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 leather furnishings. Ralph Fiennes was sort of, he was made to be. Um, I loved the the whole build up to that, and just because because the film took quite a dark turn with uh, what happened to Judy Dench's um, and it was good to kind of end on a high. And just the Bond theme, I just yeah, that I sometimes I feel I'm still on a high from the end. I mean, going into Skyfall, man, it was always a this was always a three star film for me going into today, and I, I was always thinking. What can I take from it to, to not make it higher? Because I, I knew there was going to be more things I would like. And I never really seen it before. I never really took in the music much. I paid attention to the music. I enjoyed the music a lot. I really loved Thomas Newman's score. I mean, I really love 
I'm not familiar with a lot of his scores. I, I really enjoyed what he did in the Shawshank Redemption. And one of my complaints about the about Casino and about Quantum was there wasn't enough of the Bond theme. There was plenty of Bond theme in this. I loved it. The Some of the music sounded a bit generic, um, but on the whole, that was one of the jewels for me going into this film. And I love the pre-title scene. I liked the, the introduction of the new money pen and the new Q, which was which was great. And I mean, I think as well, you got to admire what what they, they've been doing in the franchise. This is three films in a row. After Die Another Day, they're, they've got three, this is three consecutive films grounded in the, for all the, some of the flamboyance of this film, it's three consecutive films grounded films in the real spy world. Daniel Craig was outstanding in this film. I, I think the villain was a bit of a light down in this film. I, I think Javi Bardem was one of the weaker Bond villains. I think I don't think he really took this film seriously. I, I think he had very few serious moments. He was actually a bit of a light down for me. I think he's a really creepy guy. He, he's kind of got the look, but there was there was times I was thinking this is he's he's almost like like. Charles Gray's sort of camp or Blofeld. There, there was just <laughs> I found I found him a real disappointment, and I know that might um, raise a few hackles bringing that up. And and also for me as well, I just I think I kind of what Steve McCall's alluding to. I think there was actually a, quite a bit of filler in this film, and maybe perhaps over long there was bits that seemed to drag. And I don't know if it's like this. Although there's you know wonderful cinematography, there's I, I think especially the sort of low light scenes. There's a lot of kind of low light. I don't know if that has zoned out a bit there, you know. So there, there's, a, there's a couple of things that are just... I definitely, though, I mean, for, for everything I've said there, I think this film, I would rate it higher now than I would have rated it at the start of today. Okay. Do you know, you know what? I, right. I just wanted to point out, like, I'm fascinated by our different perspectives on this, actually, because... I loved the villain. <laughs> like I, I just have to. I should have mentioned it actually when I was giving my wee bit there. But I, I did. I mentioned it on the the group chat. I think I was as we were watching the movie. Yeah. There's, there's, there was certain. There, there was just aspects of the way that that character was played and written that I found to be just really strong. Actually, like the bit where he starts hitting on Bond. Yeah, it was really you know? quite. We haven't seen that before. Have we? No, and Bond's reaction to it, mm-hmm. where Bond is almost amused at what's going on, yeah. and then you know, the, the, like I love the bit where he says, "Oh, see all this running around, Mister Bond, all this jumping and fighting, you know, it's exhausting, you know." And this whole this whole thing, you know, where he he seems like he's clearly unhinged. Do you know what I mean? He's 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 not looking at things like he's looking at everything like it's all just slightly inconvenient, even to the point of being stabbed to yeah. death as yeah. a slight inconvenience of an irritation. He's like he turns around and he's just kind of like, ah, as if someone's like knocked his drink off the table or something. Do you know what I mean? It's, you know, anyway, yeah, I, I liked him, but uh, yeah. I can kind of see why he, I can see why a lot of things in this film would split opinion though. I'm interested to to delve into just from my own. Two cents. I, I enjoyed the film. Uh, it held up more or less to my initial uh, watch. Um, I'm still trying to fathom in my head where it sits now in the sort of. But we'll we'll go into it. Maybe that'll help. Cinematography was the main thing. I really loved Roger Deakins' work. I think the the visuals were fantastic. The light, um, the contrast, the 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 shots in Glencoe. Um, 
even the beginning that first shot the sort of blurry bond walking into camera and then coming to focus that was a statement of intent of this is you're gonna you, we're gonna show you something really quite special and quite different from what you've seen before and and combined with um sorry what was thomas newman wasn't it was the score was that it this, yeah yeah his score uh, yeah i think again the slightly more more use with the bond um, theme uh it kind of give you the little goosebump feelings it worked for this film because this was a film that was harkening back yeah. to the originals it was giving you the grounded setting and the style of the daniel craig bond mixed in with yeah. some of the more bombast and the slight more emphasis with humor uh of the older films but also in adding in even more of the humanizing of bond which is an amazing concoction it's really quite amazing how they're able to there was a lot of different tones, but they didn't feel like too. They didn't all hit like they meshed quite well, which I liked um, because that's a, a difficult juggling act to try and kind of balance what is traditionally an old school Bond film with the modern sensibilities of the Daniel Craig era. Um, and again, great action scenes. The start, fantastic pre-title sequence. We'll go into that in more detail. Um, you know, interesting per, sort of ways to introduce um, Money Penny. Q, the new M. There's a lot going on. The villain, yeah, I I, li- I think I, I veer with Fran on this one. I think he, I did, I was impressed by uh, Javier Javier Bardem and and Silva. I think he has something we haven't seen before, and I like when they take they try and build on. It's like the Alec Trevelyan thing where you kind of have he's an he's an agent that's turned, you know, and so he knows everything that how to go how to work things against Bond because he's he's done all the training and he knows everything. You kind of buy into it then. You can really believe that he would, if he is unhinged, could go to the length that he goes to. His plot, his own plan, I think, is nonsense. It's like, it's overly, it's it's crazy, you know, but we'll talk about that. Overall, I really enjoyed the film. I mean, it, it's, um, it's, you're right about the plan, though, because effectively, he had to have known that he was going to be captured. Yeah, like it's I mean? insane. Like... I, I, I always <laughs> question when films do that. Um, I think The Dark Knight did it with the Joker. Like the plot hinges on every single little connecting thing that he's meant to have meticulously planned out to have got uh-huh. to a certain point. It is insane, and I kind of hate it when that because it's like you have to then suspend disbelief and just say, "All oh, right, okay, this is nonsense. Right, I'll go along with it." This villain somehow masterminded he'd get into this jail cell, and this would happen, and he'd be able to coordinate the timings of this, and all. It's it's insane. It is well, that's the thing crazy. because basically the was the code not released the the moment that. Um, basically, they were trying to decode that Silva's code that was on the computer. Yeah, and the minute that they put with they decrypted it, that's when the, the what would have happened if somebody had solved that while all the guards and them were in the room, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the door just opened. Yeah. And they went, "Oh well, cl- shoot him or close the door or whatever." Do you know what I mean? It's, also, it's, like Silva, how yeah. did he manage to deal with so many enemies at once? Yeah, like it's crazy. Like you're you, it's a very uh, I don't know if it's clever in this way, but it, it's sort of. It somehow did it so quickly and whizzed by that you don't quite think about it. It's like the it's like Goldfinger in a way, like that way where it's showing you a lot of stuff that makes absolutely no sense, but because it's got a style to it, you kind of just go along with it. That's why it felt like Goldfinger to me. Actually, do you know what's funny about it? Is, do you know how when Bond gets into the lair and then has to escape? Those kind of scenes where Bond goes to the villain's lair and gets kidnapped, that's, but effectively Silva played that role. Uh-huh. So Silva was the enemy who, like... He was almost. He was, he was. 
he was basically visiting Bond's lair, Fran. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I definitely, yeah, definitely will come to that. Um, it's yeah, it's a lot of subverting the tropes and using the past, and then kind of playing with it. I quite like that as a reference to Goldeneye with the exploding pen, the 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 Aston Martin, obviously the the, the cue, the music. I loved all that. There's some great stuff and, in this. And Fran Octopussy at the start of the train scene, fair few Octopussy. Oh yeah, yeah. References there, yeah. And I believe Paul Weston actually returned. He was one of the main stuntmen on the roof of the, the train. And Octopus, he was a real veteran, but I'm pretty sure he returned for Skyfall, at least as on a coordinator basis. And some of the stunt work, especially on that pre-title scene, yeah. I know there's bits of CGI, but you can tell there's some fantastic stunt work as Let, well. Let's, ha- let's focus now. Let's talk about the pre-titles then. So we obviously open up, like I said, with that shot of Bond coming into camera, which I loved. And then we've got, you know, M in his ear, um and he's kind of he, he's got the opportunity to try and save one of the other agents is it Ronson and he's going to try and kind of suppress the blood and things like that and try and save him but he's given the order no go for the villain effectively that that was that was like Timothy Dalton see Craig's delivery I really love that he's like I've got to stop the bleeding yeah. that that sounded so Dalton man yeah. see when you think about um. I'm trying to think there was one particular Dalton line but yeah in more ways than one he. Like Steve McCall said, he gives a lot of Dalton vibes, especially mm. there. Yeah, they they really hammer in the sort of the what it takes to be a cold blooded double O agent villain, and also yeah. the head M. They they really kind of really go into a lot of they focus on that M is just as much a, a big part of this story um, and the plot, and also the, as a character they try and kind of give her a lot more focus than they ever have, um, and to showing you the really difficult decisions that you have to make it seems to be the head of uh the mi6 and, and and things like that so yeah i mean hearing her just say so cold-bloodedly like just no forget him kind of thing it was and also then take the shot as well to to eve and how was it bond bond because bond brought that up after once he confronted them after the whole incident he says, you said take the shot. Did he? Could he still hear them in his earpiece? I think so. Is that how he knew? Yeah, he must, I'm yeah. guessing it was yeah. a three-way channel type thing where he was obviously hearing yeah. what others were saying. Yeah, Which, imagine and that. It, <laughs> oh, God, no! You think you'd have thought. <laughs> like I said in my, my online article, <laughs> like Miss Moneypenny, she's going for it with the car product placement. VW Beatles! Yeah. I did, he's in the black oh, that, I did roll my eyes at that. Created with me, yeah. <laughs> clearly get a bit of money in this one company I mean it's a weird thing to try and promote it's like let promoters our cars are all being trashed buy one yeah. now <laughs> like, well I suppose the company that did look really good was Caterpillar Construction <laughs> yeah yeah we, we got a big mouthful of, of Caterpillar yeah. right on the when he swerved the which I thought was a, a fantastically coordinated and um, just a fantastic idea him to actually use the because yeah you know as as a load you do get on on some freight trains having a, a digger carried along it was quite a cool idea especially how he did his back to the villain but i right in front of you blatantly obvious is cat you know mm, yeah yeah did they get shot I cat. Yeah. yeah he got shot Aye. inside the cab of the because i was like he's remarkable amazing how much adrenaline obviously can help you that he was able to still carry out all sorts of you know, stunt work after where that. Where was it? He was shot. When he was in the cab of the but, digger. But where? And the where shoulder, I think. Through the shoulder. Because he, he, he kept a hold of those little fragments of bullet yeah. up until the point where he got back to HQ and gave them to get um, to get analysed. 
which was so, quite oh yeah it, it kept him in for quite a while actually it was quite impressive <laughs> so it was basically <laughs> until it made sense shot, for the plot. so he was shot there <laughs> but then he was also shot later wasn't he on top of the train so he was shot twice uh, yeah, I suppose he was. Yes. Yep. Yeah. On, where was it he was shot when he was on the train then? Well, I, see, I don't know. Could, uh, could, was he definitely shot on the roof of the train? Could it could it have been the impact of the gunshot on the. Well, that was what I was going to ask because that was. It did, other... He didn't seem so yeah. phased. Like it, it looked like there was some blood there, but then he was still acting normally and, and climbing and jumping and things like that. And I thought, hang on, that doesn't seem quite right. So maybe it was like a, like a slight. I don't know, a puncture or something from some fragments of glass or something, maybe? I don't know. I mean, it's, it'd be hard enough to survive that big leap off the viaduct, let alone actually been shot as well. I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of one of the, one of the less believable stunts, I think. Well, anybody who fell into water at that speed with the head first would be dead. Aye, that was... Yeah. That so was I tell you, I saw this video once, right? Um, in China, Chinese guy... Um, on a big bridge, and he's like, was getting his pal to film him for like just for laughs on YouTube or something like that, or whatever the Chinese version is. And he jumps off into the, the river, right? And then I mean, it's really high, it's almost like San Francisco Bridge height kind of thing. And then later, the video then cuts to the police like fishing his body out of the, the water because he'd hit the water and just died. Do you know what I mean? Like, literally, like, just shattered every bone in his body and like, you know, just pulverized. But oh it's just. It's, yeah, I mean, and the thing is, that bridge in Bond is higher than the one that, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Bond could never have survived that. Never in a million years. No, absolutely not. They probably, so, they over-exaggerated it. Again, it's the the suspension of disbelief of this film. There's a few points where you kind of have to go, okay, yep, Bond's really dead then. Oh, no, wait, he's yeah. not. Because otherwise... Bond exaggerated, yeah. Bond exaggerated. <laughs> but yeah, a fantastic stunt work uh, and cinematography combination and, I know, grueling performance from Daniel Craig. Uh, and, of course, then it leads into the, the theme song. What do we think of Adele's theme? I thought it was great. Yeah. Am I controversial in saying I don't like it? I just, no. particularly after the two that we've had, the um, Chris Cornell one and the Jack White and Alicia Keys one, two incredible pieces of music. Yeah. She's, I mean, it, it might just be a stylistic thing because, in fairness, it works with the pre with the title sequence. It it matched. It kind of atmospherically worked. But in terms of actually liking it as a song, I just find it a bit on the dull side. I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. totally with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I said that when we did our musical bond. Where I'm, yeah, I find it slightly dull. I remember liking it more when I first watched it. I thought it was fantastic. The more I watch it, there's points when I'm, it's like it's the bit when it repeats the, uh, da, 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 it's the, uh, what do you call that? Is it falsetto or whatever it is? You know, it just feels a bit cheesy almost at the, towards the end. There's points, but oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know what you mean. It's like, the thing is, really, like uh, I mean, I don't think that it's when I say, but I, still, I, I like that there's a Bondian feel to it mostly. Yeah, yeah. and and yeah, instru- oh, instrumentally, instrumentally, I think there's some great parts, but. It's it just falls a bit flat, I would say. Well, it's not the most exciting song in the world. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's certainly not up there with the last two. That's for sure. But it's not it's not a disaster song either. It's not a terrible song. It's just not. I mean, I, 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 it's a, I think it's a great song. I mean, it, like it's a high quality piece of music. But you know, it's it's a great song. But it's not a you know top one or two James Bond songs of all time it's... song. 
most it's most comparable, I think, to Shirley Bassey's songs. Yeah. They're that style. They're iconic. They're I, I think, as we mentioned beforehand, it's the one that's actually won in awards. So it's obviously sort of well recognised. But I just I find that style a little a little corny. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder as well that the marketing for this film was huge and it obviously represented the 50th year of the franchise. They, I bet you that played into a lot of it. And also when you get an artist like Adele, it was a fantastic choice because she was huge at this point. Um, yeah. So like, well, she still is. She's a fantastic singer, but um, that, that was kind of our peak, I think. Um, so yeah, it's probably a lot of the timing as well, but obviously as a song, it resonated. Um, Okay. Yeah. It blows my mind how long ago this was. I mean, I can't get over that that yeah. that it was eight years ago. Yeah. It does, I mean, this is technically an old film. <laughs> it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. By the way, I just can't. I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. You know, we're going to feel that way about everything soon, though. Well, I mean, uh, give it another ten years, it will seem like everything is just. You know, it'd be like, how can it possibly be that long ago? Because to me, it still feels like a pretty recent movie. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? It was interesting, Javi Bardem. I think the only other film I remember seeing him in was No Country for Old Men. I actually haven't seen like, that. I heard it's good though. No, that's I uh, just thinking us like showing our our oh, age a wee bit, shall we say? Ah, there we go. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's still- just me, but. The film felt recent up until they described the internet as the web, which no one's done in almost a decade. I find it particularly mm. over the last sort of 10, 15 years or so, you can tell how old uh, um, any kind of culture, whether it's a TV series, a film, uh, whatever, is by the way that they describe the internet. Because the word that weirdly, you, it's not something we've noticed, but the word you use to describe it has changed, particularly over the last sort of decades. And I it's a weird thing, but what, it's something weirdly enough I pick up on. What would we? I mean, we would just say check Google, wouldn't you? You would actually just say that the company name, wouldn't you? Check. I this. think that's what we do now. So, but they probably yeah. couldn't do that, so like, oh well, yeah. But it does kind of date it a little, doesn't it? You don't really see. Yeah, I was on the web the other day. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. You're right. It has changed over the years. I mean, basically, I mean, the the internet itself is completely different to what it was anyway. I mean, it's just, you know, it used to be that you'd go on to random wee sites, wouldn't you, and everybody'd have their own thing, but now it's just, it's like big conglomerates everywhere. Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, same. YouTube, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I only do a few things on the internet now. Watch videos on YouTube, pretty much, or... Do yeah. content? No, I don't really do that. I never steal <laughs> anything. <laughs> ever. Cut that bit, Steve. Cut yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> All right, then. Um... Yeah, let's uh, we'll continue with the music then, Gordon. I know you 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 really liked um, Thomas Newman's score. Then yeah. obviously he replaces uh, David Arnold, who for some reason I thought he did all of them up from since he did he started on Tomorrow Never Dies. But obviously, is he missing from the next one as well, David Arnold? Yeah, yeah, and I, I would very much like David Arnold to come back, Steve. I like Thomas Newman. Like I said, I, I think I took on a new appreciation as much as I love Arnold. I did say that in Casino and Quantum, we didn't get enough of the Bond theme. We get a good bit more of it, you know, in, in this. And, yeah. you know, a good, good version of it as well. And I think I think particular sort of standouts of his score are the bit, and this might be the first time you hear the, the Bond theme in all his glory. See when Silva's captured by MI6 and you see all the choppers appearing overhead and just like a kind of beautiful line by Bond, it's just it's a really good scene. You get the 
the the main sort of chords of the Bond theme coming in. That's a great moment. Another particularly great moment, I think, was just at the at the end when you really when you get the probably the most classic version of the Bond theme we've probably heard since since the Brosnan era, since some Arnold era shows, maybe since Tomorrow Never Dies, you get you get the bongo drums as well, which is a, a really old school thing. You get that sort of cymbal tapping that, that was evident in a lot of Goldfinger. So again, it's maybe it's maybe um humans tapping into the, the classic fiftieth anniversary vibes there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. A lot of the, the feel of this film feels like it's harking back a little to to Goldfinger specifically, but the the rest of the franchise. Um yeah, we we've spoken. We'll talk a little more about the look of this film. Um, some of the lighting was brilliant. One of the sh- I think the most memorable was probably that skyscraper sequence in Shanghai. Um, Roger Deakins has you know lit it like it looks like Blade Runner or something. You know, like um, it reminded me of a much higher budget and much better version of the Man with the Golden Gun when it's you know Bond and a, an enemy sort of in this dark lit, lit, black lit area you know um, mm-hmm. but yeah fantastic sequence what do you guys think i loved it i thought it was great mm-hmm. um i mean generally are we talking about that bit or the look of the film uh, well you can talk about that bit as well yeah but that look the look we'll start with the look and then move on to that section yeah i mean i think that yeah that that section there was it was obviously striking wasn't it i mean yeah. it was it was it was amazing um but but i mean that that that's something that goes goes through the entire movie. I mean, it's incredible actually how the framing of the shots was able to make things that are fairly mundane look incredible. Yeah, yeah. Like the scene, you know, the MI6 building isn't the most good looking building in the world and it's a grey London day, but see the bit where that bit exploded? Mm-hmm. That shot of the building just looked incredible. Yeah. You know, CG um, as well that was done by, I think. I don't think that was a miniature or anything like they've done before. All right, okay. Um, but what's quite funny about it is, like, for someone, you know, I don't, I don't know, out of all of us who visits London the most or whatever, but you know, I've gone to London loads of times, so like, um, that building's fairly familiar to me, you know, mm-hmm. like having seen it. Um, and it's it's ironic because the one of the kind of funny things I go on about Universal Expos was it was because and seeing till I think until Goldeneye. The the idea I think was that MI6's headquarters wasn't known to the public. It was it was a cover name, Universal Exports, and it was a maybe a, a more kind of grim looking building. But I think since Goldeneye, it's been the real MI6 building, which um, yeah. I don't know but, the name of the actual spot, but it's quite widely known, isn't it? Yeah, Victoria House. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, I mean it's a place that you you know you. You can, I mean, you can very easily just go and look at it if you want to. You wonder to yourself what's going on inside it. I mean, that's the thing. Like, um, I remember as well when I worked down in Cheltenham, uh, my office I was in was right across the road from GCHQ, and I'd get the bu- I'd get off the bus outside GCHQ and then go around to where my building was. But see the security around that building, the fences, the um, the, the checkpoints with armed guards inside them, like who must be military. Do you know what I mean? Or something, um, and and you look over and you see GCHQ and you think, what is happening in there right now? Mm. But you know what the funny thing about it as well is, like when you look at the MI6 building and GCHQ, they are basically civil servants, the same as folk who work in the job centre. They're on the same HR and payroll as people who work in the job centre or teachers and things like that. Like people who work for 
the bureaucracy, you know. So when I was in Cheltenham, at one stage, when I, well, when I first moved there, I didn't have a job and I had to go to the job centre. So I was talking to someone in the job centre, one of the staff, and they were and they were like, yeah, we've lost a few folk. They've gone over to GCHQ. So basically everybody, they would get jobs anywhere within that to go to then transfer, Yeah, you know. But... um. Yeah, I don't know how I got into that. It's a desired location. Go. Yeah, we we extra story for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I'm really impressed with the the look and the location scouting. The fact that we had uh, an entire shootout in Scotland was obviously something that I think us Scottish lads probably enjoyed more than uh, you know anyone else because it's it's just fun seeing you know a shootout that's meant to be in Glencoe. I think the actual house is in Surrey. So, but you know, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, Steve, the fact there's a beauty filming the West Highlands in winter just to see the mist. You could tell that was like December or January, and mm-hmm. it was yeah, it was just uh, incredible shots. Especially even see after a rainfall, and you see the you see the the streams and rivers foaming. That's when it's just more character than like the tourist season when the heather's all green. You know, it was a, it was that was great cinematography. And I just I loved the fact that it was getting back to Bond's roots as well. And seeing his parents' names and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that um the fact that when M asked about how they died, he seemed he couldn't really answer. He seemed um like it had sort of it sort of touched a nerve. I liked, and I, I agree with Fran, I, I liked the character Kincaid. I just love how the fact Bond and, and M rock up there out of the blue. I mean, he's not seen Bond since Bond was a kid or a teenager. And Bond's just like, oh, we need you to help like protect us from there's these people after us. And he's just like, no problem, let's get the guns. It's like he's, he's just, he immediately just kind of expects to get the all the weapons ready. It's like, no, he just, he's just asking those. Like- who are we fighting then? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I know exactly. He's just he's just completely ready for anything that the Bond throws at him, like you know. And uh, on his get, I love the there's that very briefly black Labrador man. See, see, every time I see a Labrador, especially in a, a film, I just become like a big girl, <laughs> and it's only for a few seconds. So he's, he's got his dog there. He's obviously a gamekeeper and all that. He's I, I liked Kincaid. Like I'm, I'm glad that they didn't go for Connery or that or that Connery didn't. Accept it because that would have ruined it for me. Yeah, yeah. Kincaid, Kincaid is a is a wonderful character, and that actor who's very famous, but I can't remember Albert, his name. Albert Finney. Yeah, he's he's incredible. I, I was actually surprised he was still around because he, he's getting on. He was getting on a bit then, but mm. he was in things like Big Fish. Was it Real Big Fish or Big Fish or something? It's called That's a band, Real Big Fish. Real Big Fish. <laughs> big Big Fish is the film. Yeah, Big uh, Fish. Yeah, and then you've got. Um, like he was even in things like Annie and all that, and I think he was in Annie, but um, like kind of old, your older, slightly older movies. He's been in loads and loads of stuff. Great actor though. Um, what I was going to say was, see the house Skyfall. I didn't even realise it was a real house because I always thought the house looked quite fake. I always thought it looked like a fake house they'd built for the movie. I can kind of see what uh, you, were, you were saying. Uh, yeah, that's a bit. There's a bit of a sort of CGI look to it. Yeah, I think one one thing that. I didn't like in that because I thought it was actually a great climax and brilliantly lit and and that was a bit where probably for the first time Silva actually seemed like a serious character but see Kincaid I I, Fran, I, I, I really really can't stand that line welcome to Scotland it's, do you know you guys were saying the world's not enough one of your problems was the 
the fact that it bit into the Scottish stereotypes, like guy with bagpipes and the this castle and all this stuff. I felt like, you know, just although he's a great character, this guy with a, a big beard in this old house in the middle of nowhere. It's like for so many tourists or people that don't live up here, that's sort of their vision of Scotland, right? Just this this lonely house in the middle of the heather and last sort of Robert the Bruce, William Wallace type setting, and this old school guy with a beard goes, Welcome to Scotland. That that is that really I didn't like it when I saw it in the cinema. I don't like it now. Hmm. I just I, I just it doesn't like bother that me line. if I'm honest. It doesn't bother me. I kinda get because, a chuckle out of it. Because the thing is, you know how it's it's interesting because obviously you guys felt that a bit but the world's not enough bits, but I which I didn't really feel bad, but I feel obviously the opposite to you in this. So uh, I actually don't yeah. mind Scott Scotland being parodied or the stereotype of Scotland because I, I feel like one one of our things in Scotland is we have a tremendous sense of humour and we're the first to make fun of ourselves. So when we're kind of stereotyped i feel like i can laugh at it because it doesn't it's not i don't find it offensive i just find it kind of funny so again when when english writers or whoever have then stereotyped us again or whatever it's a small line it's special i don't think it it doesn't bother me i just find it funny yeah, uh, i'm not saying i find it offensive it's just <laughs> i just find it bloody irritating uh, right, okay i suppose everybody's going to feel a bit differently about it i mean I mean, I would say it was a stereotype if it weren't for the fact that there are lonely houses with old gameskeepers up there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So and it's probably real. it's probably the sort of thing that guy would have said. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, in a way, it's just absolutely realistic. Anyway, it yeah. looked to me. Um, it gave me I'd a rather they showed. I'd rather they showed that side of Scotland on film than like genuine Scotland. Yeah. Which is well, could you imagine yeah. if all like Silver? Yeah, if he was a Ned. To, like, yeah, I was about to say, I, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want the image of Scotland to be like butt fast wielding Neds <laughs> yeah. with extremely cropped yeah. hair, you know what I mean? Uh, it would be hilarious though, like if you imagine Silver like got the directions wrong and ended up in Fergusley Park in Paisley <laughs> and like him and his, his henchmen are just immediately like robbed he finally like arrives at the house right but he's completely like torn to shreds and stabbed and stuff like that and like yeah. needing he's help no clothes left he's all been stolen yeah, yeah. there's a bunch of neds chasing him one could get all the neds and dangerous junkies to protect him and him <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, get the human shields around the house now. It couldn't. He could have been wearing, you know, a Jimmy hat and all this kind of stuff. He could. They could have made it so much worse. I think, but uh, fair enough. Jimmy, you know, the thing is, seeing the film in America, I got to see how the foreign folk reacted to those things. I can tell you right now that the audience absolutely loved the stuff in London and Scotland. Mm. Like, there's lots of laughter, lots of like, just you know, people. You could hear people saying, "God, look at that," you know. Um, and and my girlfriend Holly at the time she loved it, like because she had, she had a big she went used to go to London a lot or like before we met and then afterwards like whenever she came to stay here we would go to London you know so she she loved that that city you know um and obviously the Highlands as well so for her that film basically summed up a lot of like the, the, what we spent our time doing because whenever we were in Britain we would go to the Highlands and go go to, like go to the Highlands go to Edinburgh and go to London basically so I, th- I yeah. think they did this time round what they didn't do well enough in the world is not enough because I remember saying that the interpretations of both London and Scotland in the world is not enough just didn't feel 
good enough. London, particularly, because the, the obviously the the pre-title sequence for it is world. Yeah, it's yeah, the, the it really there. long boat chase sequence. Yeah, with the Millennium Dome. And I just I felt London just looked. I mean, London's a relatively grim-looking city, but it, it just looked particularly bland and grim. Whereas the they didn't change anything about London. It looks as it does, but just something about the cinematography and the way they shot it and the camera angles and stuff. It it looked particularly sort of stylized. It looked yeah so much better and the yeah. same with scotland the the setting was actually very similar sort of big mansion house type thing in the middle of nowhere but there were far fewer sort of awful stereotypes and it just looks a hundred times better yeah so whatever they've i think they've, they've they've taken what should have been done properly in the world is not enough and corrected it which yeah. you know, i particularly appreciate you know, you're right actually and but i think it I'm going to say something that's positive now. Can you believe it, right? About about cinema, but because I'm usually the one that's like, oh yeah, too much CGI in movies these days, blah blah blah, right? But see, when you watch a film like Skyfall, you could say the same thing about Casino Royale as well, maybe. And there's other movies that that you could say this about. But after a certain, I, th- I, th- I would say like sometime after 2010, it's almost like the quality of cinematography went through the roof. Do you know what I mean? It's like. It's almost like, you know, now they talk about the golden age of television when you had, like, Soprano, like, this this new age of, like, the Sopranos on TV and, like, it led to things like Breaking Bad and the, the quality of TV shows went through the roof. I feel like cinemas had a similar thing in the sense that the best films that come out now are a billion times more advanced and beautiful than anything that's ever come before. Do you know what I mean? In a lot of ways, like, just, you know... The artistry that goes into a, a really well shot film now. Well, I, is I mean, yeah, unbelievable. That, I agree. I think around ten. And we spoke about this in your start, the Star Trek project, Fran. Um, twenty ten, twenty was it 2010, The Star Trek reboot film, and that was uh-huh. when HD was just starting to become kind of a thing. Really, like really, like cinema was starting to use it much more. The the, the and um, I felt that. The this there was a high contrast in all those early films that was so off putting. You see it around all those films around then, and also um, things like J.J. Abrams was putting in the constant um, lens flare and all these weird techniques to try and make the film stand out, but actually detract for me. But this was a naturalistic approach. This was all about um, finding the most interesting shot and and panning it the most interesting way, and then having a sort of visual that would really bring out the picture and i think it's it's a it's the trio i spoke about in our whatsapp chat it's you've got sam mendes yeah. a director clearly as a is a, a fantastic visionary especially with his one shot sequences we're going to watch the next film the next time specter and he's you can see that even more so in that and roger deakins as a cinematographer and we mentioned and um we haven't mentioned him actually stuart baird's the editor of this film mm-hmm. and we've mentioned him a few times he's came up a few times um and from the star trek and bond that he's obviously a talented editor because he is um so it's a, it's a sort of trio of and that's it's all about who's doing the film that can make it that good but you're right definitely films are, are, are certainly looking better now um we haven't let, let's talk about let's focus on the villain again then i don't know if we've spoken too much about him first of all this is a film that doesn't have a lot of henchmen there's only really the villain and maybe the guy at the start that i didn't catch his name that bond is tracking for uh, patrice. patrice patrice yeah so really they're the only named villains that i can remember there's literally no one else whereas previous films usually have a sort of trio of three villains that have either worked together or sort of so this is interesting it's just one villain that and obviously he's got hundreds of henchmen that are following him that they don't really go into a lot of depth with with that 
Um, what do we think? Where, where does well, it land with you guys? Well, I, I, yeah, I just want to jump right into this one because I've got a lot of thoughts about this villain. So basically, I find it fast. I find him fascinating because you've, he's not got an organization really. He's kind of a lone wolf, isn't he? I mean, like you say, he's, got, he's not got like a, a big management structure of henchmen. Do you know what I mean? Or, or a big building somewhere. I mean, he's obviously got an island he's on for the moment or whatever. But really what he is, is he's basically a rogue agent, uh, kind of on his own. But the, I, the the story, the idea behind how he came to be who he is, is interesting because you've got a man who worked for MI6 and was so good at it that he had his name on the memorial wall hmm. at the MI6 building, okay? So he... Um, and, and I'm assuming that his girlfriend or wife or whatever she is, that he, he that it was said that he had rescued her from like a brothel when when she was young or something. So he must have. He's not been a villain that whole time, so he might have been okay back then. So he's obviously saved her from that, and then they've got into a relationship, right? But at some stage, he's gone, got captured by the enemy, has been tortured and brutalized inside a horrible little room, then tries to take the cyanide capsule to end his own life, the capsule that the agents have, which then burns the inside of his body and disfigures his face. Do you know what I mean? Right. So this guy has gone through fucking hell, right? And, and, you know, in ways that we couldn't possibly imagine. A guy, a guy who had, has admitted, I believe, once or twice on the screen, he, he wants to die. He wants to die. He's not happy being alive anymore, right? So, you know, you look at him. There's a scene where Bond, ha- like, Silva's in the, the glass kind of cell and M is there talking to him and Bond is there, right? And when Silva is talking about what happened to him and how M abandons the agents and betrays them or whatever, you can see Bond looking at M. Bond's thinking about Ronson. Bond's thinking about, you know, take the bloody shot. Right, Bond's thinking about like, did anybody think about me when I was gone? You know, um, would do they care? Do you know what I mean? But it's that whole idea of of a of a villain that you actually, you know, I think that that we are able to hold simultaneous thoughts in our head. Do you know what I mean? So we can we can acknowledge that Silva is evil and has done evil things, right? But we can also feel a a a, a level of sympathy for him, or maybe. You can at least understand how he's become the person that he is. Well, that's that's decent writing to be able to try and give some depth to the monster that we are seeing on screen and able yeah. to try and not humanise him because I think that gives some sort of like. No, but the thing is, so let's not let's like not a, get away from this though. Yeah, but he I is think, human. Yeah. He is human. Yeah, fair enough. He is human. Like, so fair like, enough. They they do try. Have... They try and give a balance to try and yeah. kind of show what. I don't think maybe they explore him. I think they because they focus so much on Bond and probably rightly so. I think, but there is an element of he does. We don't see or get to really kind of delve into Silva as much maybe as we could have. Um, but it's not like unusual because I don't feel that we got a lot of like it's not like 006 Trevelyan and Goldeneye. We kind of really we we knew he got one sort of section at the start. And then obviously he's out the film for ages and then he reappears and it's like he's a villain, you know. But um, yeah, I, I think I think he's a good villain. I, I, he's certainly memorable. I don't think we've seen a villain like him in the Bond films. At least not nothing comes to mind. Steve, what what were your thoughts? I really enjoyed him. I like how chilling he was, which was massively different to 
um, the sort of magnitude of megalomaniac-style um, off-their-heads villains that we've had who are all guns blazing. Um, I loved, I mean, right from the very start, the way he was introduced, particularly just that long, sort of locked-off yeah. shot yeah. of him walking down, slowly walking down a long hallway towards Bond, who was sat handcuffed, was, I thought that was fantastic. And that whole interaction where he was kind of, you know, rubbing his hands up and down bonds and obviously trying to, rather than going straight for, you know, holding a gun to his head and threatening him, going for that, playing that really psychological game, doing exactly, I suppose, what an agent, a trained agent would. He knows exactly. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's another example of an almost bond on bond. It's a trained agent versus a trained agent. He yeah. knows how to press bonds yeah. buttons. And the way he does it through sort of, trying to intimidate him and rubbing his hands up and down his leg and all that kind of stuff. Um, I loved that about him. And yeah. the way he was just... Yeah. Um, I mean, he, the bit where he was... When he eventually escaped and was dressed up as a policeman running around the tube network, I couldn't help looking at him and thinking, he doesn't look... Despite being in a policeman's uniform, doesn't look anything like a police officer. <laughs> it's the worst... Exactly. Yeah. It just that that felt a little bit off. But the way he was kind of constantly chuckling to himself, he was I mean, completely unhinged. Yeah. And I like that. I I kind of almost prefer there's a bit more sort of substance to that, I think, than someone who just comes out throwing bombs and guns and this and that and sort of causing explosions and stuff like that, which obviously he does at the end. But by that stage you can see he's just almost exasperated. And even like the way when he's he's standing at the house and he's just kind of fed up and sort of rather than chucking a grenade, it kind of goes, oh, and just kind of places it gently through the window, which then explodes. The way the way he's portrayed is just so different to anything I think we've seen before. I found that particularly enjoyable. There's an element of menace that I found with him because I always feel like he, no matter, you could do anything, have your gun up at his face, but you somehow feel like there's always something going on that he knows more than you. Like, he has got a plan to get out of it somehow. Like, you just feel that he has somehow worked... I suppose that's because of the plot they set up earlier, of the crazy plan that that they kind of then gives him that edge, I think. Gordon, I know you're not as keen on Silva. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think Javi Bardem in this is creepy as hell. I think the way he looks, the, the kind of weird blonde hair his his face he's got the look man he's he's creepy as hell and i think that creepiness it keeps you in edge for the rest of the film you don't you know so i'm not i'm not gonna say he's a he's a bad villain because i think in that respect he he really nails it because you need to have creepy villains but um he massively overplays the character I think some some of the best villains are sort of underplayed or just when they've been natural. I would have loved to see Javier Bardem just playing a villain seriously because even some of the some of the wackier Bond films, some of the villains actually do act quite seriously. I don't think he takes it seriously for a second up till maybe that like a brief scene at, at the house Skyfall at the end. And I agree with Steve McCall. Like I really loved the. Um, I like the way the character was built up. You know, you kept hearing about him. It was a long time till you saw him. I agree with what Steve said. Yeah, the camera angle, I'm gradually zooming in. But I just think he's he's just kind of massively overplayed. I just, I don't I don't feel like, like you can really quite take him seriously. I think when you can't, when you qu- can't quite take the villain seriously, it's, it, 
definitely is a big detractor for the for the whole film. Hmm. Interesting. Fair enough. I, I, for some reason, yeah, I, 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 I took it more as this is a he's he's really kind of tried to carve a, a villain that hasn't been seen before and kind of. I think when you're seeing a character, you know, he's chuckling away when he was kind of realizing he's fooled Bond when he's in the police outfit and things like that. You're watching a villain who's having fun being a villain, and I think that always adds something for me. Like, he's the antithesis of Hugo Drax, who is completely straight and Mr. Bond, and he doesn't really get out of his monosaur. Speaks in one long, yeah. completely unbroken yeah, I was, sentence. Like, like as, was, mu- as was... much as he had edge, like that's, there's, there's definitely a character, there's something to be said for that type of role. I think I do like the kind of, there's a this is a villain that is having fun and, th- and it fits this film, so that's why I like it because I think this film was trying to bring back some of that style. So Yeah, it's like, it's like Javier Bardem at times, I think he, he was trying to give his lines like as though he was in a Shakespearean play. It just wasn't, I just didn't buy him. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Um, let's talk about the surrounding supporting cast. We've obviously got, uh, well, well, Judy Dench is kind of the next kind of major player in the story. The plot really focused on her. The actual history really is between her and Silva that is kind of the central focus of the plot, which is uh, another, another sort of, again, that's something quite different. I suppose the last time we had that was maybe the Electra King stuff and the King Dynasty and The World Is Not Enough, which this film obviously shares quite a lot of things with, but clearly much better. Um, what's her thoughts on Judy Dench? Well, she's Very good. Good, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I think particularly I mean, it, that ending, the way that her death scene was, that almost had me in tears, just the way that was, I mean, she's obviously an absolutely world-class actress, so it's it's not saying much to say that she was fantastic in it. Did you see it coming, I thought Steve? that scene particularly. Yeah, did you see it coming? Because I, I know that I, I said it was her last film, I don't know if I was spoiling it for you a little. No, I mean, I this is, this, I just believe it was the only Bond film I've seen in the cinema. We saw it oh, right, okay. when it came out. So I, I couldn't quite remember all of it because obviously that was eight years ago so i couldn't quite remember whether or not she died but i kind of i think i saw it coming when you see the amount when you see how determined particularly silver was mm-hmm. and the way he was hunting her towards the end you thought yeah she's she's absolutely a goner here yeah and obviously the way she was injured when they were running through the underground tunnel but it wasn't kind of an overly dramatic death it was it felt very kind of she knew she was at the end yeah and the way the sort of di- her dialogue just as um, she sort of dies in Bond's arms, effectively, I thought was absolutely stunning. It really, really was the way they set her up as essentially responsible for so many deaths. Um, it's almost like the film had. Oh, Gordon's gone. Uh, the film kind of had to kill her off because it was almost like a you know what was it the the line that the the thing comes up on their screen the hacker screen that says something about her sins and things Think like that on your sins yeah, yeah it felt like um the film was playing up to how much death she is responsible for and therefore the death was well not warranted because in, in the end it's you know it's to serve but you know you have to question it a little sometimes i suppose in theory she's responsible i mean everyone we we talk about bonds kill rates everyone he kills is well, almost everyone he kills is on the job. So if, I suppose she's responsible for all Bond's kills, along with yeah. the kills of every other agent. It's, yeah. it's going to weigh a huge amount on her. So yeah. I suppose in that respect, it is well, natural you'd get to a point where you know, you've got to stop somewhere. And you're right, it all kind of culminated in this film. You thought there's, there's, 
she's backed into a corner here. She had the obviously the government trying to push her out from that end. You had a villain hunting her down and trying to kill her. You had Bond, who was kind of at his wit's end. It was all there was a kind of sentimental relationship there, but that's literally all that was holding her together. So yeah. she had to go somehow. I think, but um, the way they did it, I thought was was excellent. Do you know what, what's really interesting? Actually, is what's being explored with M is the idea of a of a commanding officer and the decisions they have to make. Basically, now um, to to go back to another another little side story from Star Trek, there's an episode of Star Trek where one of the crew members wants to be promoted to the rank of commander, right? So they're a lieutenant commander, but they want to take that next step to be a commander, and in order to get promoted to that rank. Uh, the way it, it works in the show is that if you're that rank, then you can command the bridge, basically, of the ship, or, you know, you can command a deck. So uh, they have to go into the holodeck and do a simulation where the, the test is to actually order a crewman to their death to save the ship, right? So it's like an engineering problem, some sort of problem with the warp core in the simulation, and the only way to solve it is to send someone in there to manually do it, but in the process they'll be vaporised, do you know what I mean? Um, and I think that's kind of the, where M is, isn't it? She's in a job where where you know let's say with the whole situation with ronson for instance all that matters is the disc all that matters is the names all that matters is the mission right so that's it so doesn't matter who lives and dies yeah basically um you know and and you can see why you know silva obviously believed that you know but then as he went insane from the torture, he kind of started to blame M for the the plight of all the agents, which kind of it's like a a, a, re, a revolution of secret agents fighting against their overlord M, you know. Uh, but I like yeah. I like that element of it. Sorry to interrupt. There it was just the idea that the suddenly we're kind of seeing you know all these different secret agents on missions and seeing the wider network and obviously the sort of vulnerabilities when they realise they're all you know being targeted and things like that. Um, it's probably the most one of the most. Um, devastating to MI6 villains I think they've ever had. Oh, we've actually got video of Gordon. Very loud. Whoa. Are you in a wind machine or something? I'm a sound of mouth and the volume down. Sound like you're inside a plane. I think your volume is coming through the device microphone rather than the headset. So you might want to unplug and replug. And... I've still got the headphones in, don't know what's going on. If you unplug and replug them. Uh, I just realised, Steve, how yours sounds really good now, Steve. <laughs> That's weird. I don't know how I've done that. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to move from this position. Yeah, that, that exact spot is perfect. <laughs> How's that? Any better? So far, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, cheers. Good <laughs> yeah, right. I just, suddenly, this, the most high-pitched, your spot and noise just came on and just everything froze. I had to reboot the whole laptop. I don't know if it's the broadband, but at least you can see me. It's my Universal Exports. There we go. Now, we were talking about M, so I'm just going to yeah, I'll get to where I was going to go with it because I kind of went off to Silva a wee bit there, but yeah, I I think we definitely got to see you know, I think you said this earlier on Steve, didn't you, about how difficult M's job is. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like what she actually has to do. I think maybe Gordon, you said, in fact, we have all probably have said it at some point, but yeah, I thought it was, I thought, you know, I thought it was an excellent farewell for her. Uh, you yeah. know? And another thing about Judy Dench as well is there's a, a, a woman aging gracefully as well. Like now you get people who get a lot of surgeries done and things like that and try to look younger. Like, She's she accepts herself for who she is and how she looks. And the thing is, Judy Dench is still a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. 
yeah whatever age mm-hmm. you know she's just a, a different phase of her life but she's you know there's really something unique about how she looks do you know what i mean yeah and i like the fact that she's she is herself you know definitely i think this is one of the best ways a character's bowed out of a franchise that they've served for seven films um what a way to go i think this story having more focus on our character been able to kind of build that relationship with daniel craig and, and bond um i think it it was a great passing of the torch to Rafe Fiennes, who we can now move on to as well. What are is we? Ralph's? No, that's it's Rafe Fiennes. He's it's Welsh. That's is it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, how do you pronounce it? Rafe. R A F E. It's like it's Rafe Fiennes. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know until about five or something years ago when I was listening to the Empire podcast and they kept talking about Rafe Fiennes. I was like, I think it was actually the Skyfall spoiler special, and I was like, hang on. Who the hell's that? And then realised who they're talking about. I think this is a Mandela effect moment. I don't believe it. I think I well, think check it, check, it check it out. Check it out how to pronounce it. <laughs> Give me a sake. Right, let me have a look. Sounds like the name of a chocolate bar. Can you get me a Rafe when you're in the petrol station? I, I thought because I don't know if it... so, this is so weird. So it's it's spelled Ralph. Uh huh. But it's pronounced Rafe. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Which is a much better name. Did you know that Rafe got? Um, really into bother years ago for having sex with a flight attendant in the toilet on a plane. Did you know that? No. I did not know that. I think it was while he was playing Voldemort. <laughs> I was going to say, I hope it is, because there's, a, a, I imagine that the headlines, Voldemort and uh, Air Hostess, there must be some kind of, there must be a joke there somewhere. Yeah, I'm, polishes his wood. Potter-based I've, joke. I've heard what I'm very specific. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. But Ray Fiennes, as, a, as M, obviously, Gregory, is it Gregor Mallory? Obviously, M surname probably works. Gareth. Is it Gareth or Gareth Mallory? Uh, I think he's, I don't know, I've only seen him properly as M really once, but I think, you know, I think he'll be interesting to. I think his style. He's obviously a slightly younger M. I think he looks younger than we've had before, for the for the M character. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, probably about, I maybe about ten years younger than any of them have been. Something like that, five to ten years. And talking but, about um, younger, we've obviously got Ben Wishaw, the youngest looking Q we've ever seen, which is. Well, what's complete. interesting is he he speaks very much like the original Q. He's got that quite posh, proper kind of eloquent voice, you know. Uh, oh yes, Mister. Oh yes, you know, blah blah blah. Like that's kind of like yeah. very polite, like almost like private English school boy kind of accent. Yeah, you know? true. I mean, I'm just hearing Paddington now because obviously he does the voice for Paddington in the Paddington <laughs> films, so it's hard to separate. That I'm just hearing Paddington giving out Bond dialogue, but. Um, what do you think of Q? I thought it was a great scene between him and Bond, the introduction. It's the great chemistry there. I, I was loving the way the sort of washed up Bond was looking at that point, the sort of prickly beard. There was something about Craig's eyes as well. He just, um, his eyes sort of glazed over. He just had a funny kind of look at that point. And it's the way, it's similar to, obviously it took a couple of films with Desmond Llewellyn's Q to have that, um, that animosity between him and Bond, but they were doing it right away here, and it, so they didn't go off to the best start. Just, I think, just brilliantly written dialogue. I love the way they're both just staring at at the picture, and it's just, it's just the way the way that um, that Q describes the painting. And I think the best part is like, despite the fact they've kind of disrespected each other, Bond he just shows that respect. He he just glances at him as a 
a smile reaches out his hand, he says Q and introduces himself. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's great. It's like there's a there's still a respect there. And one thing I would say though, Bond Bond's a navy man and he looks at that picture and all he can say about it is bloody big ship, you know. You would think mm-hmm. he would have a bit of knowledge. Oh, that was from, from this battle and this ship was built in eighteen oh one or whatever, you know. But I, th- I thought that was a great scene. I, yeah, quite. And it's funny because it took it took me a while to buy into Ben Wishaw's Q. Because when I first saw it, I was sort of defensive of the old Q. I thought this guy's way too young. This this doesn't feel right. But after a couple of viewings, I, I actually really like him. I think it fits this film, the cyber terrorism hacker stylings of the the, the plot and things like that. I think it completely fits. Probably would be. It's probably more realistic, isn't it? I mean, you could could never have bought Desmond Llewellyn in this version of the role i don't think no you had to had someone young i think with the the whole computer hacking sort of decoding stuff you're absolutely right you need to have a younger bond um ben wish actually works really well i think I, I completely agree with gordon when you're talking about the introduction between the two bond obviously sees this kid and goes nah i don't know who this is but i'm walking away from him <laughs> and then he, he suddenly realizes oh shit that's my new quartermaster yeah I, I didn't know q was short for quartermaster that might have been a knowledge i think that everyone else knew but i was like holy shit that's what it stands for <laughs> but that aside i also protected in that sort of introductory dialogue i mean ben wishaw's line of what we expecting an exploding pen we don't do that kind of stuff mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. that was a brilliant kind of nut where this is this isn't one of the old this isn't a Roger Moore film this is we've completely scrapped all that stuff and started again yeah. I thought that was a nice little some would say it's a harking back to the past some would say it perhaps it's a bit of a dig it's I like a, to think it's, it's a bit it's of a, a dig it's, a, play, like it's it. a playful jab at Goldeneye which is yeah. obviously oh. why it lost four stars for me um, <laughs> <laughs> that was Boris with the pit exploding pen but, uh, don't disrespect Goldeneye yeah. do you know I'm getting a bit of Boris because see when I'm when I'm at work I sit there just clicking my pen all day uh, where where would we be without see so if you're in a boring situation if you don't have a clicky pen I've even started to kind of work be able to work my fingers around it the way that Boris does you know I bet I bet Steve Barry does the same thing being a big Goldeneye fan that's exactly it mate that's exactly it I mean you got to work in the just the whole pen juggling thing you know Right, let's uh, let's talk about um, the character me and Fran were speaking about before the podcast started. Uh, Severine, I think is how you pronounce it. It's um, pr- played by Berenice Marlowe. So she's Silva's associate and mistress. Um, now, we were sp- speaking about this because I had a slight issue with the scene. I don't know if anyone else did or whatever. I might be... You know, but she's set up as a victim of sex trafficking, isn't she? And she's uh, been a, an abusive relationship with Silver or whatever and things like that. And then all of a sudden, Bond, well, so-called frees her for a very brief moment and sleeps with her, which I felt was an unnecessary, like, 12 seconds of film. Didn't feel yeah, like not it didn't need to be there. just that, but walks, effectively walks in on her in the shower, which of yeah. all the ways to kind of pounce upon someone you're right considering her background that was perhaps a little bit blind maybe a little bit of the old kind of right we need to get a little bit of sex appeal in there for some of the old fans yeah but i can see how when you actually break that down that's a little bit disrespectful yeah i thought that was so icky i was just like i just thought why have it in the scene it's such a see, tight I... film. like it doesn't need to be there and also like 
she's if she wasn't a victim of sex trafficking all these things maybe you could maybe argue it's the style of the older films and things like sleeps with a beautiful woman of course she's attracted to him all these kind of things but this time it's like really icky this one i think i don't know i see i i think there's a i understand from a narrative point of view that it's superfluous I get that. Exactly. And you normally, you normally are critical of films that are not tight. I'll I'll be critical of it for that reason, for for sure. But like, I didn't find it icky at all. I know. You didn't? Because obviously you didn't have an, I only mentioned it to you and you were surprised. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, you could, you know, to be fair, like, we're all, we all agree that it's superfluous because you could cut it and the film would be the same. And Bond wasn't doing it to get the mission progressed further because he was already on his way so it was you know it was a, it was purely a personal moment for bond and her right so you didn't really need to see it you know what i mean it was wasn't anything that needed to be seen but this idea of kind of like i think we need to be clear on 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 this right she was she was working in a brothel when she was very young she was taken away from that brothel and rescued by silver around about that time maybe think imagine a few years later or something like that Silva was a normal, nice, kind human being for years, probably, until he eventually had his incident where he got tortured and thingied, right? So, you know, she's, she's a, her main problem at the time is that she's scared of Silva because of the way he's become, right? Um, I don't think that people who are victims of crimes or, or things like that are not like, you can still pick up signals from him. I think it was clear she she was into Bond. Do you know what I mean? Like Bond was picking up her inner fears of Silva, but I think she was she was there was a way she was looking at Bond. I do think it was odd that he walked I, in the shower on her though. Yeah, like, I, I, I actually disagree. I actually just only picked up fear, a false kind of um, flirtation because she obviously she's, she's acting, and then fear when you actually get to to see what's really going on with her. So that's why it's, it was like. Oh really? We're just gonna go back to the old ways, and I think that's the sort of stuff they should have stayed away from. To me, so that's, that's the thing, right? Like, it, like it's twelve seconds. It, it doesn't it, move like entire but, stars or anything for me, but it's just a moment no, I know, of I know, I know. where they lose and, a wee bit of control. It's superfluous, right? I get it, and I've, I, you know, me guys, I've been on top of this in the previous Bond films, like with with romantic bits and all that. But like, I don't want to think that like that it's a no go area to have like sexual content with women ever again do you know what i mean because it's like yeah. because why what like it's you know, not the that's not the argument i know that's not what you're saying but like it, it, you know it's that kind of way where it's like you know i suppose from my perspective as long as it's a narrative it narratively makes sense which in this case it didn't it didn't make sense narratively because he didn't sleep with her beforehand, did he? No. Like, that would have made more sense. Like, if he'd done what he did before, like, he kind of sleeps with them, seduces them, and then gets to the next stage kind of thing, mm-hmm. like, on his mission. So, yeah. But, like, it, I, I mean, I don't know. I it think was, it's taken away from the fact that we're not talking about her character, but, I mean, Alex, she, she, well, she she's a, a great actress. She didn't have a, a lot to do, but she certainly had a sort of a bit of an impact on her first sequence. I read that she was influenced heavily by Xenia from Goldeneye, and you could see that just from the way she, her stance, her clothing, her makeup, the way she held the cigarette. I was uh-huh. kind of getting great, you know, Goldeneye vibes from that, and again, that always helps. And and I think the dual sort of role that she was playing in those in that scene where she's trying to you know, play the part to Bond, but really, and then you kind of, we see what's really going on. I think it was quite an interesting character and obviously quite a shocking 
end for her as well. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I agree with what Fran said earlier about the you know the the fear she had this fear of Silva, and we've seen that with so many of the sort of kept women female characters and also you were saying Xenia Steve which is interesting also I was getting the, the scene between her and Bond at the bar was like I don't know if you remember Magda of Octopus who was I think he was one of Kamal Khan's mistresses and the fact they're having a, a drink together and um, I guess with that you can kind of tell that she maybe wants to isn't really part of the, the villain's overall plot but the you get a real sense of danger. Um, it really kept you in edge, just thinking what what's actually going to happen to her. And I, I got to say, I, I that was another great Craig performance in that scene at the bar because Bond is Bond's ability. This is again going back to the classic Bond of the book. Because Bond's ability to read someone's character, and he was he could sort of like you know tell. And he, he could tell from her reaction, it was like, I can tell from your reaction that you're scared of these people that and that you're looking out for, you know, to check these three bodyguards aren't watching you. It's just, you know, there was Bond, Bond's just, he's calculated there, you know. Okay. Well, she she had, um, I mean, that actress was, you know, she didn't have a lot of scenes, right? But she really, you know, there was a, a, a extremely high quality of acting from her. You know, like the way the way that she was conveying things and her eyes and her expressions and things like that, you know, was great. And that's again with the shower scene. That's the reason I liked. I actually liked the scene. You know, not only for the fact that she's a beautiful woman, but also I liked just the way she acted in every scene she was in, even that one. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I thought she was such a great actress. You know, but the way that she used her facial expressions and the way that she, you know, she was very good at, at acting without. It was like show not tell. You know, she wasn't. She wasn't. She wasn't speaking words all the time, but you could see a lot going on there. But um, yeah, I spe- particularly when she was showing the fear, like when she was shaking her, her hand was shaking a bit. She was smoking her cigarette. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She was trying to look really blasé, like having her cigarette up like that and kind of relaxed. But like you it broke for a second as she was taking a draw of the cigarette. You know. Okay. I thought one, it was great. One last thing before we get to the rating. Um, what about Money Penny then? What's her thoughts on? Eve, our money penny. She's, she's great. Like, I, I've always liked her ever since I, I first saw her in Twenty Eight Days Later. She was in that, um, and obviously that's years ago. She was much, much younger. You know, she must have been in her very, very early twenties or something. But um, I, she was, or at least I'm pretty sure it's the same actress. I'm, I'm pretty Harris. sure. Uh-huh. Pretty sure it is. Um, and I'm sure I've seen her in some other things as well. But I've always had a real soft spot for her. Um. I think she's, you know, she's a she's an excellent actress, um, you know. But there's something about something about her face, her hair. She's just lovely to look at as well. She's got this. See her hair. See when she's like going to awards things or whatever. Sometimes the style she's got are completely unique. Do you know what I mean? They like the way she does it. But um, I think she's she's brilliant as Money Penny, and I like the fact that Money Penny's kind of you know, she's she's doing different things with her career so she's thinking about oh well i go out on active duty i'm going to come back to the to work in the office again or whatever do you know what i mean she's she's doing things that obviously she's put off a wee bit by them you know what happened when she, she accidentally shot bond didn't she yeah money so, penny's character goes on a journey from the start to the end of that film she starts the film effectively as a 
It's like a Jack Bauer-style field agent. By the end of it, she, it's like the classic money penny. She's behind the desk in MI6. She's got those great scenes, really sharp dialogue with Bond. And I think also Mallory's another character, I think, goes on a real journey. He goes on arc, man. He he seems a real... He's like an enemy at the start. He wants to... He wants M out of a job. He wants Bond off the field. He then starts to sway to help M in the courtroom. He then, when Bond and Q and Tanner go under the radar to to work together without authority... Marley comes in seemingly about to stop them. He then helps them. He goes on a journey then, but then the film, he's like the classic M in M's classic office. And but the, the two of them, I think the whole supporting cast, there's, there's just something to be to be said for, especially the way the new characters are brought in, you know, Money Penny, the new Money Penny and the new M. What do you think of the reveals at the end? I mean, obviously I, I don't know if you'd kind of told us at the beginning. I don't know if you remembered, Steve, that she was Money Penny. Did you feel it I was... did. I didn't see that. I genuinely didn't see that coming. So I, I think towards the last sort of 10, 15 minutes, I thought, yeah, I can kind of see this. But throughout the film, I did not realize that Eve was going to eventually end up as, as Money Penny. I, I really liked that. The reveal, the way they did it as well, is the one kind of element where they, they genuinely did hark back to the old films because the layer of that office as soon as you saw the yeah, the coat, coat as soon as saw the hat stand, stand yeah. I thought oh, oh I, I didn't even see, see the hat stand I did crazy. yeah I was like oh wow it's back to the 60s I was, I was waiting exactly just... that same yeah, by the door the desk was in the same place the door yeah. that then leads into M's office which looked identical Do you I, know what's I, interesting I, it was interesting it. Steve is that it actually um, remember we were talking about that Bond playlist where you, there was an order to watch them that wasn't like it would put them into an order where the narrative of Bond's life would make sense. That's not you don't watch them in the order. Like so, they'd be completely. You'd have one from the nineties followed by one from the sixties. Do you know what I mean? Like in this kind of or, view and order, but that would make this fall. Obviously, your Casino Royale, um, Quantum, and this would be right at the very start of the Bond sequence, wouldn't it? Because that you, do you know what I mean. Well, they are a separate timeline, and it is kind of technically meant to be the the origins of these kind of this other timelines uh, version. Yeah, what's interesting as well is looking at Daniel Craig and how he's changed over time. Because, like, yeah. if you look at him in Casino Royale, he looks really young there. Yeah, he looks. He has aged in the four year gap from this and Quantum. You can see that he's kind of the 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 lines are starting to show. Kind of the hair's kind of thinner, things like that. Um, which God, is eight, now. eight years ago. Yeah, we're going to see a really kind of. Roger Moore-esque A View to a Kill probably version of but he's, I think the thing with Daniel Craig is he certainly still keeps trim he keeps he still yeah. he actually looked like he yeah. bulked he bulked back up again for Skyfall I think I think he got yeah. trimmer for Quantum but he actually looked more bulky and more intimidating in what's Quantum. funny is in Quantum, Quantum he actually looks like because um, that was 2006 wasn't it? 2008 2008 God 2008 man but yeah like his hairstyle and that it's interesting because it's slightly longer, isn't it? He's, yeah. he's almost got a slightly sh- not studenty, but like, like there's a there's an element of like people had slightly longer hair then, didn't they? That was the style. But like, I mean, it's long. Like, it's, kind of, it's not really long hair. He's got. He's always short hair. Yeah, I, I just I feel like it looks more. It's funny because that's the one time that he looks a bit more like the time. Do you know what I mean? That he was in. Um, whereas for all the rest, they always kind of looked the same. But um, it was interesting, like, see when M was writing Bond's obituary, 
and you could see the picture of him in the background, and it just looked it looked like a child, almost like baby Daniel Craig. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. All right then. It's a very spherical. You know, for for no time to die, can you imagine him? And I got to say, Daniel Craig, he looked great in the you know the the light grey suit. You know, that's like like some of um, one or two Moore's appearances. Connery and Goldfinger, you know, without being like over, without being overly cheesy, they were they were giving him that classic look. I mean, the suits I, fitted you, them so well; they looked amazing on him. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine him? No time to die, just rocking up to the MI six office. Daniel Craig tossing his bowler hat onto the hat stand. What about they, that? They might have it. You never know. But uh, is there or anything fin- else? finishing the film in a rubber dinghy with uh, with whoever? <laughs> I mean, what a way for Daniel Craig to go out. I know I'm only kidding, tongue in cheek. What uh, is there anything else you guys want to talk about before we get to the ratings? Not particularly. <laughs> All I right. Think. Cool. Yeah. All right, Fran. What's your rating for this one? I'm gonna give it a five out of five, actually. Wow. Um, because the only thing, yeah, the only the only thing I could think of that narratively wasn't so the best was that scene that we've discussed. Do you know what I mean? But um, you know. On the whole, I think it was it was about as good as it could have been, the film. I mean, I don't think... It's certainly up there. It's one of my favourite of the Bond films anyway. So, yeah. So that's my rating and my justification. All done. Steve, what were you? I think I'm going to go a four on this one. Um, and as with most of my ratings, it goes entirely on my guts, just kind of what it feels. This, I mean, I enjoyed this film, but it doesn't feel like a, a five or a high four. So I'm going forward on this one. I love the whole old versus new theme right the way through on both those levels. I really did appreciate that. I loved how this film looked, as we look particularly the skyscraper scene that we talked about. It looked really just the, the way they played with dark and light and the camera shots and the way they made London and Glencoe look as stunning as they did. I thought Daniel Craig was fantastic in this. The way I like, I'm really enjoying the more sort of serious Bond and when there is a little bit of humour from Bond and he does a one-line of or whatever, it's kind of bookended by something particularly serious or dramatic happening. Yeah. I thought he was fantastic. Yeah. I love the villain, again, as we've said in this. Javier Bardem, I thought, was spot on. The sort of real creepiness. What I think just takes it away from is, I think it just felt a little bit long. There were some bits that, that dragged... Um, some of the scenes up in the Highlands, I think, just kind of went on a little longer than they, they perhaps should have done. It was so two and a half hours, it, wasn't it? it? It was somewhere, yeah, two hours 25. Yeah. So yeah, not not far off. It was it went on and it could have been a little bit tighter. Yeah. But again, I think that's all I can really take away from it. So yeah, I'm going four stars. Excellent. Okay, Gordon, what's your thoughts? And uh, what's Actually, going on here? Are you standing, we can just you see your... Your torso here. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, for- I forgot that you could actually see me now. <laughs> well, um, I'll sit down. You don't have um, to. It's just I if can't it's... see you, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, you can stand- gonna... if you want to stand up, is that easier for you? I, I, I just kind of forgot that you could actually see me there. Um, yeah, I was kind of comfortable standing up, actually. It's lucky you didn't, like, it's lucky you didn't like, take your jeans off and start changing into pajamas <laughs> or something. I know. Oh, sorry, my laptop screen just went down there. Uh, right. Ah, that, that, so this film was a three. I think it's gone up to a three and a half. I think scraping a four. It's scraping the surface, right? I love the direction of all the Craig films after Die Another Day. They're still rooting the spy world. 
Was the cinematography good? Again, yes. Was the music good? Yes. Was Daniel Craig good? Yes, yes. And yes, he was brilliant. I think he, sh- he uses his wits, like classic Bond from the books, uses his, his knowledge of everything. I love the tension of the cyber attacks, especially when MI6 went into lockdown. And I love Bond's roots coming out, you know, going back to Scotland. I love the way it showed, again, like a human side of Bond, you know, falling off the rails. He's in a bar playing drinking games. And I think to myself, the classic Bond out of the books, if he was ever going to retire, if he was ever going to go under the radar, that's the sort of place he'd go. He'd go to some island in the Bahamas um, out of the way. And that is just true to the character. So you've got to admire that. What um, what dragged the film down for me, first of all, which we haven't really touched on, is kind of the contradiction of Bond's age because in Casino Royale and Quantum, it was giving the idea of a, a youthful Bond just begin with MI6 now and this film, you know, Money Penny's talking about old dog learning new tricks and they were just giving an impression of him being an aging agent. I also think um, I really don't like the subway chase. I hate mm. the way a train randomly caves in through a wall that just the overuse of CGI there is pretty horrible just for that moment but I loved some of Craig's witticisms he does the humor quite well in the subway scene but you know the, the main villain shouldn't be prancing around in a police outfit that's another thing that kind of takes away from from javi bardem for me i know you guys like him but i mean silver is overplayed i think he's he's creepy he's menacing but he doesn't take it seriously and he's overplayed and i also think the courtroom seems a bit too direct i mean he's sort of leading this attack in a courtroom containing M, Mallory, etc. They don't even have silenced pistols, man. They're just blazing in with <laughs> guns. They're literally coming in with all guns blazing for a, a Bond a Bond villain genuinely keeps in the background. But I admire the way they try to change direction. Too much filler in the film. And lastly, I want to say, I think, which I have touched upon a while ago, over to the Aston Martin DB5. I think, I think the DB5 is a lovely car. I think it belongs in the past. I think it had its day. I think... It was nice to see it make cameos in Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies, but possibly Casino Royale, I think they just get away with it. But it was overused, especially the sort of over over cheesy line about ejecting M. I didn't mm. really appreciate. But overall, three out of five, Scream the Subs is a four. Enjoyed it. So, so is, that, is that a three then? Or, 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 three. Or did, did it scrape the four? Did they get the four? <laughs> you leave oh, us a tent or hooks here. I'm still thinking, Carl, we'll, we'll do the, the second part of the podcast in a, um, three and a half, no. Three, three and a half. half, right. Okay. So I, I just think also, I'm just going to say, because I'm thinking about the films that I gave fours to and the films I gave three and a halves and the films with fours generally have stronger villains and I feel like the likes of Moonraker's probably a three and a half, for example, and that's a film I, I really enjoy. I just thought I can't sort of you might think this is ludicrous, but I can't really rate this film higher than Moonraker. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I've been toying with where I'm at with this film. Um, I remember back in the day when I watched this in cinema, this was the kind of, I started in my head ranking the films because it's 2012 and I got my cinema car, blah, blah, blah. And this, I remember giving a four. And I think, I thought I would come up to a five. And there was points where I was thinking, yeah, this is up there with Casino Royale as... And, and also the two Daltons and Goldeneye in my eyes. But it's just dropped slightly lower. It's just missed a five. It is a very high four. It's probably my highest four, um, just above Spy Who Loved Me. I love all the things you guys have said. 
I liked Bardem. I liked the chemistry they built up between Bond and the villain, especially actually mostly the chemistry between M and the villain and the way they used M in this film. Um, and also humanizing Bond. I've said before, I've always wanted that. That was fantastic. Musical cues um, coming in, things like that. Cinematography was the highlight. Loved the look of this film. That is the strongest, one of the strongest points for me. Many things that are, are strong. And the nice blending of tones that they've been able to encompass throughout the film. Old and new and keeping it modern still when you've got references to older films very subtly. I think it was uh, uh, tight in that way and it just lost a few points for the the, the, the moment I, I was not as keen on with um, Severine's character and things like that. But overall, still a very enjoyable film. It's the kind of film you could say to someone, you want to watch a fun film? This is a fun film. A wee bit long, I agree, Steve, but overall, very fun film. So four stars for me, but a very high four for me. So that is Skyfall, guys. We have one film left of the entire franchise that we can see, of course. There's going to be another one after that sometime, whenever it gets released this year or next. But so far, one film left, Spectre, to cap off uh, the Daniel Craig, well, era that's available. And unfortunately, I I don't remember this. I mean, I remember Spectre starting really strong and kind of taking a bit of a cliff dive. We'll go into, of course, when we come back uh, for the next podcast but unbelievable we are reaching the end of this project we're going to have to start thinking about our lists and our rankings for each of the different uh, kind of different categories we want to award over this long year and a half project or however long we've been doing it so yeah thanks guys that'll cap us off that's uh, another podcast done one more to go we'll see you next time for Spectre bye bye welcome to Scott <laughs> See, you love it. You love it, really. I want to get Kincaid just to stand at the border and say that to people when they cross over. Oh, shut up, you jumped up little twit or shit. Just another. And they're all